0: My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we are talking about Hideo Gosha, one of the great samurai filmmakers. And when I say that, I don't mean he was a samurai,
1: is that he made a lot of samurai films. Well, thank you. We're off to a good start. (laughs) Yes, Japan Month continues on The Important Cinema Club podcast. This is the second of four, and uh, it's the second week in a row where we're talking about a filmmaker who I knew nothing about going in. You probably didn't even hear his name before, right? No, but I'd seen certain titles. Mm-hmm. I'd seen Sword of the Beast as a title. I'd seen Three Outlaw Samurai as a title.
0: When you're talking about Hideo Gosha's filmography, a lot of it is available, but the ones that are really easily streamable and criterion are very odd ones. They're all from late period when he kind of switched his style to a much calmer and classier one that won Japanese Academy
1: awards. It is interesting, isn't it? You know, you look back on mid century art house filmmaking and you realize how much of it got kind of reduced, at least in the popular Western perception to just a couple of names Mm -hmm. Like from Japan for so many years, it was basically Kurosawa and everyone else. And then in the seventies, Oh, started to become a bit known. You also have Mizoguchi who made
0: his films. That, that that's in the those are like the three I feel out of Japan that like the art house
1: crowds are like all right we're not going over this. Yeah, but also like those are, you know, so many of the Japanese filmmakers who have become much better known in recent decades were studio craftsmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that admiringly. Japan had a very, you know, rigorously enforced studio system. You look at someone like Seijin Suzuki who Uh, Got dumped by the studios, basically, when he started to implement a little bit too much of his style, you know, what's
0: interesting about Gosha is that a lot of his filmmaking is defined by the kind of cross that he bore being a TV director before he became a feature film director. And it's something that haunted him like almost a dozen movies into his career. Producers who were saying stuff like, ah, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's a TV movie guy.
1: Yeah. So here's a filmmaker who came from a lower strata of Japanese society, who began his career in a lower strata of the Japanese entertainment industry, television, an industry that from the film industry's perspective, was very stigmatized. He made films in low genres, and his art was often about the people that society considers low people. And I know that, you know, like so many of the greatest filmmakers, he considered himself merely a humble craftsman. Kurosawa, of course, enjoyed great crossover success and auteur status, whereas Gosha mostly plied his trade with what would be considered pot boilers.
0: From the beginning of his feature filmmaking career, uh, Japanese critics already put him in the shadow of Kurosawa, who had kind of made the defining samurai epics with stuff like Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Sanjuro, and that, like, like trying to make a thriller in the English language, you're always going to be compared to Hitchcock. Like the comparisons are there right from the get-go. Certainly you can see the influence of Yojimbo on Mm -hmm. some of these movies. And uh, I think that Gosha's career is split into three kind of distinct phases. There is the first one where he was basically making samurai films in kind of that spaghetti western mold. There are some of them like Samurai Wolf 1 and 2 that are essentially like programmers that are 70-ish minutes long just like they do it, they do it well, they're not trying to reinvent the real... But then it was later on in his career that things started to change. And I read a really good book by Robin Gatto about Hideo Gosha. Unfortunately, it's only in French. So you need to be able to speak French if you want to uh, get into this two-volume
1: set. And Justin, I will never do that.
0: (laughs) I mean, if you didn't do it, uh, going through the Canadian system where they force you to learn friggin'
1: French. Well, I couldn't force me. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and some people like Will, heroic, were able to go through uh, being able to say, merci et s'il vous plaît.
1: Trying my best to learn how to
0: conjugate verbs and just couldn't do it.
1: Nightmare. J'ai <laughs> tu
0: ah, vous avez... Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, don't even want to think about it. But anyway, you're right. There are various distinct phases in his career. And actually, I'll let you finish what the last one was. The
0: last one was he kind of moved away from the manly uh, samurai epics and he moved into period stories about like geishas and and sex workers, and it became a much more female-centric view. And in those films, those are the ones that won the like Japanese Academy Awards. Those are the ones that were like two and a half hours long. And when you talk to like fans of his movies uh, I say talk I mean read (laughs) about fans of his movies there is that kind of well I wish his movies were like extreme (laughs) like his earlier films instead of you
1: wish the later ones were extreme yeah yeah.
0: instead of the more it it could be argued it's an older man's film the kind of like oh I'm making prestige films again like he did another remake of the novel that Gates of Flesh is based on and that's a movie that got adapted again and again
1: and again and he's like all right, I want to give my crack at it now I'm minimally qualified to say exactly what his recurring themes and his worldview were, but I take it from trusted sources that Gosha himself said that his philosophy, his worldview, something that recurs throughout the films is this sense of animal logic. Mm -hmm. Basically, We're all beasts. We're not able to overcome our beastliness. It can potentially lead to our ruin, but we can also use our beastliness to our advantage because we're all beasts.
0: It could be said that like the roving dog is a visual kind of theme throughout all his films. There's almost always a roving dog in a Gosha
1: picture, and that's kind of how he views all of the main characters in his movies. So people often say that his work is bleak, cynical... Uh, That that popular word nihilism gets Mm -hmm. thrown around sometimes. But I mean, what you also see in the films is a deep empathy for the underclass. And I think a very deep class consciousness. Certainly all the films that I watched for this episode are about, you know, these systems that exploit people. They are engaged with, you know, those distinctly Japanese ideas of honor. Um, and they all, and they're consistently showing how these these systems, these power structures that bow at the altar of honor, inevitably betray it.
0: Every single movie that I watched this week all had the conflict of a main character who is kind of butting up against middle management who is bowing to the upper echelons of power. And breaking every rule that is expected from these kind of organizations to continue functioning and by consequence crushing the main character who has to come to a realization of I put my face in these things and they're failing me and because of that I need to fight back.
1: A couple of other miscellaneous thoughts. I just want to say that all the movies I watched are all incredibly beautiful. I'm often struck watching, you know, Japanese films of the studio era, just how gorgeous they are Mm -hmm. uh, on a level of craft. Well, that's because they're at a technical proficiency that they all have to be.
0: There's a reason that the Shaw brothers brought in cinematographers from Japan because nobody else was doing it that well.
1: And another unrelated thought, not a penetrating insight at all, but there's an extraordinarily intense level of violence in some of these movies. And the violence is not poetry here, is it? It's no. very bloody and difficult. It's a
0: struggle, oftentimes, that there's very uh, little of the artistry of, like, oh, this badass,
1: look at him just take down all these guys. And I learned that when he was working in TV, and we'll give some biographical information in a minute, but when he was working in TV, you know, he was making a samurai show on very, very small sets with very few resources. And so much of it became. About the look on people's faces, you know, the the struggle, the emotion of that rather than the swordsmanship per mm-hmm. se.
0: In one of the documentaries that we watched, there was like someone that made a comment that Gosha brought like this kind of loud crunchiness to the way the swords hit, which is something they usually associate with television, but he brought it to the movies, this kind of intensity that you don't see there, that TV filmmakers oftentimes use because they have no resources, and Gosha just kind of transitioned that to the big screen as well, even though that a lot of the technical craftspeople kind of looked down on him for doing these kind of things.
1: Now, Gosha was born in 1929 to a working-class family in a working-class neighborhood, the Asaka Sorry, folks, the Asakusa district of Tokyo. Uh, I apologize. You'll be hearing some horrible mispronunciation from me <laughs> thing. a lot. Uh, but he grew up in this milieu where he was surrounded by gamblers, gangsters, sex workers, as well as street peddlers like his father. I learned from the documentary we both watched that he was ashamed as a young man of his working class background. He would make a false background for himself, at least, at least in his early years. I think that class consciousness is clearly, or that that class anxiety, that class struggle is extremely evident in his films. But his father at some point told him, son, life is like a battle. You either win or you die. (laughs) And this kind of hard-boiled insight was apparently very important to him in, in developing his worldview and his artistry. Listeners, don't follow that advice. You don't need to win. You can just survive. That's all you need to do. Now, like so many of his generation, he enlisted in the war. He was quite young. He was you know, a teenager at the age of 16 when he was training in a kamikaze camp. That's right. He was training in a kamikaze camp. Film history could have been very different. But uh, needless to say, he didn't have to do his kamikaze flight because the war ended. But he did lose siblings in the war. And again, one person in that documentary said that the idea of being a survivor became very deeply ingrained in his soul, in his spirit and you can see that in his work as well. So after the war, I know he worked as a journalist in radio. He was a news reporter and then he got into TV where he directed, you know, crime dramas. Uh, he made uh, he worked at a network called Fuji TV where he made a TV movie called Muchikura in 1961, which was a sort of remake of Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I would love to see that and then not it, even listed on Letterboxd. Yeah, and then in 1962 he made his first Period drama. They call them. Uh, Good luck. <laughs> I'm not even gonna bother trying to pronounce it. But you know, the kind of thing that Kurosawa would make, mm-hmm. uh, swordplay dramas. Um, but then his breakthrough came in 1963 when he created the Three Outlaw Samurai show, and it was conceived as a crime show, which were very popular at the time. But then. You know, it was reconfigured as a samurai show. And one of the things that was notable about it was bringing the kind of intense, tough violence of the popular gangster shows to the samurai dramas. And there wasn't usually that association at that time. And we already mentioned it. You
0: do these kind of things because you need to separate yourself from the pack and there is something kind of perceived to be low about doing something like that like samurai shows are often about like honor and doing the right thing but in gosha's film the samurai are scruffy they're dirty they're on the outskirts and they're fighting against something that is
1: technically undefeatable because it is the structures of society themselves so the show began in 1963 was a massive success And he left after the first season to turn it into a feature film of the same name. Now, as you said earlier, there was a huge class divide between TV and movies in Japan to the point where all of the major movie studios had apparently signed this agreement to not work with television. That's wild. Like, what? Well, I mean, I guess they regarded it as competition. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, when he when I, I think it was Shochiku that he made this film for, all of the technicians really looked down on him. They thought, yeah, he's a primitive who worked in tv and i understand from that documentary that you know it was his first movie he would do things like uh instead of saying action he would say cue because Mm -hmm. that's apparently what they said in tv and so they would look down their nose on him for that
0: the thing about like television directors especially in this era is they had so little to work with that they knew exactly what they wanted and how to get it like those people should be respected versus like
1: looked down upon and i mean sh- certainly three outlaw samurai from 1964 is a very assured debut mm-hmm. uh, an incredibly powerful visual experience the pace of it is incredible the film takes place in a rural peasant community in the edo period three peasants have kidnapped a Magistrate's daughter. And they're saying they'll only return her when taxes are lowered. You know, the ruling elites are taxing the hell out of this starving peasant community. Now, the peasants are able to uh, really make a stand. They ward off this regional lord's soldiers. But then there are two samurai mercenaries who the regional lord has hired to finish the job. Now, added to the mix, is another samurai, a wandering ronin named Shiba, who uh, becomes sympathetic to the peasants and their cause. I'm not going to say everything, but one thing leads to another, and the magistrate's men eventually, you know, they manage to kidnap one of the peasants' daughters, and eventually— A settlement is negotiated where both girls are freed and Shiba gets a hundred lashes. The movie turns into, of course, just listening to that title, these three
0: samurais that start on different sides eventually come together and they have to go up against the ruling power and take it down. Because
1: like, let's just say that the ruling power isn't going to honor all of their, their deals.
0: That's the thing about all of these Japanese movies is it's all about, like, on the surface, it's about honor and following those rules. Guess what? Wake up, ladies and gentlemen! The people in power are the ones who are corrupt and can do those corrupt things and so feeling bad about it. So ultimately, the, the peasants' problem is that they accept the deal, mm-hmm. you know. Thinking that the people in power
1: will, you know, stay true to their word, which never, ever happens. I don't think I'm doing a reach when I say that, you know, something that we see pretty much any time we watch, you know, one of the great Japanese directors of this post-war period, and I, I'm always hesitant about, like, painting a national cinema with a broad brush, but you sense them wrestling with like the march of progress you sense them wrestling with this post-war society where there's this increasing like western influence
0: yeah well it's all about american occupation after world war ii which is something that gosha dealt with directly and that kind of permeates all of his films (laughs) I was reading an interesting comparison that Harakiri, which is another big famous Japanese film that came out, also has the same screenwriter of Sword of the Beast and also has the same star as Sword of the Beast. But the difference between that filmmaker and Gosha is that that film is more anti-feudalism and it's also, its emotions are very reserved. While Gosha, it could be argued if you watch a bunch of his films, his politics are a little bit kind of like more unknown but you know he's anti-authority like he's always against
1: authority right and you know this mid-century ambivalence in someone like Ozu or Naruse, mm-hmm. you, you can see it in their melancholy about the old ways are dying. The Japanese landscape is now being filled with these, like these buildings and these businesses, and you know these styles of dress that look like they come from elsewhere. And you know the the family unit is starting to break down and turn into something else. the The cultural logic of capitalism is being felt everywhere. And the Ozu movies obviously aren't; they're not any one thing. There's a sort of sense of inevitability in them. There's a sense of empathy for the younger generation, but you feel the uh, melancholy about this inevitable passage of time. Now, in these movies by Gosha, um, there's there's a sort of sense of like everything we thought we knew, everything we thought we stood for and believed in is a lie.
0: Yeah, I wonder if he's approaching it from the sense of it's always been a lie or it's turning into a lie.
1: Yes, and I'm not sure actually. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure either. <laughs> Maybe somebody who's seen all the films could answer that question more clearly but it almost seems through the journey the characters take is that there was never a right choice or people acting accordingly only the illusion of that
1: so i think in three outlast samurai it's always been a lie mm-hmm. in sword of the beast it's always been a lie i'm more ambivalent about the wolves mm-hmm. um and we'll get to that one a little bit later well so sword of the beast
0: was gosha's follow-up to uh three Outlaw samurai another famous one that i always get confused with sword of the doomed <laughs> and i was actually reading my review for sword of the Doomed*, and i went Wait a minute. Was that the review I wrote for Sword of the Beast? I just posted it in the wrong place. (laughs) Two completely different movies. I actually really love the director of Sword of the Doom as well. Sword of the Beast uh, starts with a bang in Media Res, where we have our hero played by Mikijiro Hira on the run. We're not sure why he's on the run. Enemies are coming from every corner. Like, he could be a villain. He could be a criminal. We're not quite sure as the film starts. And I love this opening, where he's being hunted. He gets, like, an inn, and, like, he stands in the inn and, like, pulls his sword out to see how much distance he'll have if he has to attack someone and what you find out is that he's on the run because he was tricked by a superior to kill his superiors in a belief that there was going to be reform within the organization that he worked in
1: right it was a horribly corrupt organization where like the, you know the the lower samurai the peasant samurai We're being paid shit being paid shit and forced to do all the dirty work. And so, like, the the leader of the peasant samurai was basically saying, yeah, kill the leader and, and I'll get in and I'll make things better. But really, he just wanted to run rule with an iron fist.
0: And what the film actually ends up being about is that... Uh, this main character on the run meets a couple who are stealing gold from a government site for another clan. And they're doing it illegally so they could be stopped at any time. They're killing anyone that gets in their way. And then
1: by the end of the movie, uh-oh, big surprise. Well, let's not spoil it, but let's just say that- uh, There's corruption? Never trust your boss. No,
0: never trust your boss. If you're under them
1: and they can get a slight advantage by brutally killing you, they will do that. Yes, and I think that the this this is another movie that suggests that it was always a lie Mm -hmm. and that power structures like this are inherently corrupting. I'm not certain about The Wolves, though. So this one from 1971, a few years later, it's in color. It's a straight ahead crime film. It takes place in the early years of the Showa era, which began in 1926. And the plot opens with the release of more than 300 prisoners who were pardoned in a goodwill gesture.
0: This opening is so awesome where they're like stepping out of the prison and then you see the crime, which was like this brutal sword fight in a cinema that caused them to be locked up,
1: With they're just like fighting through the seats in the cinema as it's playing, just like slicing people open. So one of the prisoners is Iwahashi, played by Tatsuya Nakadai, who's very good, by the way. He's those big soulful eyes. <laughs> he's a Yakuza henchman, basically. He was imprisoned for killing a rival Yakuza boss. And that should indicate the level of blind loyalty that he was willing to summon for his clan, for his cause. But The world he's been released into after, you know, 10-ish years or so, is very different. He used to be the number two man in the clan, but now the number three man has surpassed him, and the old clan is merging with the enemy clan, the one that he killed for. So he tries to keep his head down, tries to integrate into the new system, finds that the new bosses, you know, no longer possess... That same code of honor that he once knew.
0: That perhaps a friend of the
1: protagonist uh, did some bad things to cause this clan to merge. (laughs) And most egregiously, the daughter of Iwahashi's old boss the one who he would kill for is being thoughtlessly cruelly forced into marriage with the boss of the enemy clan basically as a goodwill gesture
0: so this movie The Wolves is like the end of a trilogy like a somatic one where Gosha's style kind of changed with the movie Goyokin which came out in 1969 it was Goyokin was like a big color movie and the best comparison I can give it to and also all of uh, Hideo Gosha's early career is Sergio Cabrera. It's like his The Great Silence, where it's like you're taking these Western tropes, but you're putting them on like this gigantic framework. Also, uh, Goyorkin takes place in the snow, like all the big battles take place in the snow. I mean, these are not like revisionist genre films per se. They're not. But like this one is, again, it's dealing with the same matter of a guy, uh, Goyorkin, did something really bad And now it's going to happen again, and he has to step up and make sure it doesn't happen, which is his clan is going to murder a bunch of peasants to steal their gold so they can pay off the upper echelon of people that are in power. And so with Goyokin, he seemed to be transferring Gosha into a different kind of mode of filmmaking, which continued with Tenchu, which I have not seen, but is um, a very highly liked kind of samurai-ish movie, which is notable for starring Shintaro Katsu, who plays Zatoichi most famously. And I should point out that like something that in that doc that we watched that people kept saying, and I've, I read the book too, and they kept saying again, is like, all Gosha wanted to do was a Zatoichi film. He would love to direct a Zatoichi film. They would not let him. Uh, like they like very clearly said, this guy, because he worked in television, does not get to touch Zatoichi.
1: Oh, uh, terrible.
0: And so then the wolves is kind of like that last chapter where a studio approached him and said, hey, Always making these big, uh, popular Yakuza films. Could you do your own Yakuza film? And because of the mode that Gosha was working in at the time, he's like, of course. But instead of those like tight, angry Kinji Fukasaku-style action dramas, he made this more kind of like sprawling, sad, and contemplative movie. Because like you start The Wolves and you're like, can't wait. Starts with a bang, like all the slashing and killing, and then it's just kind of like a slow realization through these landscapes of this character realizing the world that he basically sacrificed his life for does not exist. And that he can do something to not fix it, but get some justice for it, but it
1: will end up killing him in the process. Now, while making these movies, he continued to have a hand in television. Only after The Wolves.
0: And like the biographer says, like, we're not sure why this happened. Like after The Wolves was like this big, giant, sprawling film. I mean, when we talk about the action, like the action at the end of The Wolves is amazing, where it's like a desperate struggle that essentially the dramatic crux of it isn't the cool moves the hero is doing, but it's his friends going please, like, don't make me do this. Like, don't make me kill you. And every kill is brutal. There's, at the end, someone gets a knife to the face. And I don't know if you noticed this, Will, but it was like a big dummy head that had like a knife cut across its yeah. face. Yeah, I love it. Because you wanted that like detail in it. I thought it was a good dummy. Yeah, I mean, it looked like a dummy, but I mean, I love that stuff. I'm like hooting and hollering whenever that comes up. And yeah, after the Wolves, I don't know if it was, because it wasn't a financial success, but he did return to television. And that, again, put that kind of stamp on him of like
1: oh it's a tv guy but then throughout the 70s his luck began to run out in television mm-hmm. like he continued he developed these dramas that were increasingly short-lived i didn't have his finger on the pulse of popular taste until the 1980s when he reinvented himself as this director of violent and to some extent sexually explicit women's drama that's right like the geisha
0: is the one that kicked it off 144 minutes That's how you know it's important, which is almost like the flip side of his early career. Like those ones we mentioned, Three Outlaw Samurai, even Sword of Doom,
1: like they're under 90 minutes. Now these films, I think they had a mixed critical reception because, I mean, they were kind of skirting the line between like high and low. They did win a lot of Japanese Academy Awards. I I do know that. And I do know that they were popular successes. Mm -hmm. People who had worked with
0: him early on in his career said that... They got the sense that Gosha was just frustrated or felt the limits of like this manly ideals that he was putting on screen early on in his career and was kind of exploring something else. But there was still a kind of tiredness to these films, that there wasn't the kind of commitment or passion that you saw early on in his career. And I'm going to say, honestly, I have not seen any of these late period films, but like looking at the reviews on Letterboxd, like people are pretty mixed on them. And that it it feels like the kind of, you know, prestige films that you would see Yeah, you know, around Oscar season, even though that they do have that kind of like Gosha sweatiness and violence. But there's a reason that they're not really in the conversation as much of his very present early work of a guy coming out of television has something to prove but he has all the tools in the like you know early television filmmakers handbook the thing about like television now if you're a tv director you're on a factory line in a different way than you were in the early 60s like there's a reason that a lot of the early directors in television like john frankenheimer Sidney lumet became amazing film directors and it's because they had to develop a vocabulary of cinema in television that is not the case anymore but Gosha was one of those guys and it's amazing to see his early films and see him deploy that style
1: so I'm a broken record on this podcast about another director that I didn't know much about and who I now like so
0: I hope that people listening to this like maybe they never heard of him before and they will go watch his earlier films because he is a director that's kind of like fallen through the cracks for a number of reasons like the fact that no one could really place him in the sense that like his earlier samurai films people will watch three outlaw samurai and then kind of get lost and be like but what what is he beyond that and there's lots and i
1: hope people will check it out three outlaw samurai and sword of the beast are on the criterion channel right now
0: yeah so give them a watch and then explore more i mean again his film karma 1945 which is his remake of gates of flesh gates of flesh the Seijin suzuki movie has only one review right now. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know if that's because the film is unavailable or there's just no interest, but I mean, that means that this is a director that's ripe for uh, rediscovery. As per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. So our first letter is Kung Fu Streaming. And the letter writer goes, "Dear ICC, I spent the months watching a lot of classic Hong Kong pictures to celebrate Chinese New Year, but their quality ranges wildly. And when it when it comes to their streaming availability, here are some examples: Five Deadly Venoms on Pluto TV, scan a fuzzy VHS; Five ki- Fingers of Death on Amazon Prime, scan a fuzzy VHS tape; Fearless Hyena on Tubi TV, scratchy low quality print, sides cut off to fit sixteen by nine ratio. As proud purveyors of physical media, I assume you don't encounter this problem much. However, for cheap ass." guy like me streaming has been a godsend for seeing recommendations that i otherwise would probably never find but it's really disheartening that these services settled for such low quality scans of the films within a few minutes of online searching higher quality scans of several of these movies were easy to find so it's not like these services don't have access to them right
1: cheers i think that's a real problem
0: yes well i think that it comes down to martial arts films at a certain point in time and i'm not sure where this dividing line is we
1: accept it as a culture hey all this stuff is in the gray market, right?
0: I mean, good for Gold Ninja Video because that is a universally well, accepted
1: thing. The reason for that is, I mean, Shaw Brothers is one case, but there were a million companies in Hong Kong and Taiwan yes. in the 70s and 80s that were pumping out these movies. And that went out of business 40 or 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, who knows who owns them?
0: And the thing about the Shaw Brothers, too, is that they never made their films. This is something that people don't know. They Their movies were not available into the 2000s when they made a deal with Celestial and they started putting the movies out again. Yeah, So for a long time, films were only available in these fuzzy, probably any copyrights were cut off the front and back.
1: Now, a lot of those, like... The independent films, the the really cheapo Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies that you see on Tubi that have like Bruce La in them mm. or, you know, have titles like uh, Drunken Something or Other, you know, like those are movies that the negatives of them might not even exist anymore. Like they were mastered on a VHS tape in the early 1980s pan and scan dubbed and that's the version that's in circulation and if somebody has a 35mm print maybe they'll scan it somewhere but who who knows where the negatives exist
0: but he even pointed out that some of those movies like Way of the Dragon that film
1: is not in the public domain (laughs) well I mean if you go on Tubi and you watch like There are certain like Jackie Chan movies, certain Bruce Lee movies where like the master that is sort of in circulation right now is bad. Yeah, it's like dubbed. And I mean, what I would recommend is to just be vigilant. You know, if you can rent the movie on like YouTube or iTunes or something for five dollars and you get a decent like. But you may not even (laughs) renting it on
0: iTunes. The thing about all these he asked like how they can be so lax. All those services are user uploaded. Like you can create an account and upload that stuff. It is not a curated thing. And I have to say, I kind of like that because like Amazon Prime, I don't think they accept user submitted things anymore. You have to go through like, Another company, their QC quality control stuff was very strict. I mean, Charlie Roxburgh said that he submitted one of the films and they said, like, oh, this one specific thing keeps us from posting it. And it's like, oh man, that's very difficult. And I think that can keep a lot of films off the service. But it also means that, like, real kind of like, not trickster, what am I looking for? Rip off artists?
1: Yeah. Okay, here's what I first recommend save up a bit of money and buy, like, the Shout Factory Shaw Brothers set, the, mm-hmm. the Shaw Scope set save up some money and buy two of them and that'll last you for two years <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> you'll have enough martial arts from forever
1: <laughs> and then just do what you can
0: I mean it's tough because like some of those low quality versions do become the dominant form even though there's a better version like some uh, German companies they've put amazing remastered versions of the movie but you would not know that unless you go specifically looking for them and they're long out of
1: print which is a real bummer in that case and if you can't afford it support some of the physical media companies
0: and you know a lot of people look at like the Wu-Tang channel which is the ultimate uh martial arts movie channel and I was like how dare they put some of that stuff some of that stuff would not exist if it wasn't on the Wu-Tang channel yeah like I look sometimes for stuff that's on there I was like where do they get I can't find it I don't know who is running it how they're doing it I don't know how there is like 2.5 million watches on some nothing martial arts film and like a million comments do you think it's like Auto-generated by them, it has to be.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people. I think you know, YouTube is more popular than Letterboxd Mm -hmm. is. It's a very low-cost way to watch a movie.
0: But it's just like, like people are like, oh, this is one of the best, and it's like, this is not one of the best. It's like one of the worst. Like you'll find that on like a Bruce Lee film. Yeah, maybe. So it's almost like a self-generating thing. I feel like they got something going, and I would love to see like an expose behind the Wu Tang chant. Like what is going on there?
1: You know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking of when I was a teenager and we didn't have. Have all these streaming channels and we didn't and, and I had no money. Digging through the bargain bins? Yeah, going to Walmart and getting those pan and scan DVD copies of, I don't know, the Shaolin Drunk Monkey or just, yeah, Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave or shit like that because that's all that was available mm. and I'd watch them in pan and scan and I thought it was just fine. <laughs> so
0: what we were trying to say is to the letter writers, like, you swallow it and you watch those bad versions. I'm, I'm
1: actually not trying to say that, yes. but what I what I think I would say is like... Don't watch bad versions, this Don't watch, because uh, I don't watch the no i don't anymore. watch a bad version i i am i am saying that like thank god that we have better versions yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> like
0: we were happy for that back then watching those wu-tang dvds where you're like i guess i'll watch rizza play chess in it against old dirty bastard but like that era is over and thankfully you know they're being remastered even though man i feel like we've hit that wall and the companies are like all right you like jackie chan right here he is again <laughs> Battle Creek brawl again again hey it's a new remaster. Uh, excuse me, sir, didn't you do a remaster in 2018? Yes, but this one's better. I'm
1: like, is it? <laughs> For a movie that's not very good, in my no. opinion.
0: <laughs> uh, I you like really, that. Yeah, I really you like that. Battle Battle Will I be buying the second version? No. You know what uh, did come out recently is that all those Eureka Blu rays from the UK shout factory is putting them out with all the special features at a much lower price point too. Yep. What a fool I am. (laughs) So like iron monkey came out and was like, Oh wow. Whoa. There's so many special features. They're not even listed on the back of the box. It just says like interviews. And if you look, it has almost every special feature from the original, like Hong Kong legends versions from the Eureka versions. Not all of them. They're, oh, Donnie Yen did a commentary track for the Hong Kong Legend version for Iron Monkey. I wonder why. Oh, he did it with Bay Logan. <laughs> <laughs> That's why.
1: All right. Um, I love talking about Kung
0: Fu. Our next letter goes, your opinions on. Hello there, Monsieur Ducleu and Monsieur Sloan. Thanks for the hours of delightful and insightful discussions on everything from sleazy Euro trash to canonized classics and hearing about someone else's shared fascination with. Can you guess uh, Joe D'Amato? Nope wet movie one and cool uh, dooder.
1: wet movie one and cool dooder. do you think wet movie one and cool Dooder like make money i think they do make a little bit of like youtube ad revenue. i would hope but, so but you they, need to get a lot of views to make real money especially now like they really cut
0: that down but like they have such a place in so many people's like cultural memories i don't think they make a lot of money no that makes me sad because we've gotten multiple letters of people being like i'm so glad you're talking about that <laughs> about wet movie
1: and cool dooder, yeah <laughs>
0: oh speaking of that man i fell down a will sloan style rabbit hole Watching like I didn't watch all of it because I was like, what am I doing? I like woke up out of a haze, but a three hour history of the Nostalgia Critic oh, and God. like kick ass. You
1: like <laughs> Send it to me, please. And
0: I was like, they're going to go through every single
1: thing that ever happened to these guys. You know what's amazing? There are so many videos like that online. Isn't that wild?
0: <laughs> like I don't understand. And there's no insight to be found other than just like detailing what happened. They're Is that a- like you're justifying it to yourself?
1: Like, how could I spend so much time doing well, that? yeah there are a lot of people i mean these are people younger than us yes a lot of people who like grew up with the freaking nostalgia critic mm-hmm. and he was very important to them i mean my god the nostalgia critic is probably more influential than pauline kale at this point
0: i mean i'm gonna say that uh one of my podcast co-hosts on another one i once went to her and it's just eliminating who it could be <laughs> many years ago a decade she had a signed photo of the nostalgia critic on her fridge wow she was in the podcast so a couple of candles around it <laughs> she's like i got rid of it i got rid of it it, it was a, it was a phase it was a phase so maybe these videos of like them going through all these dd de- is them trying to like maybe find logic in the madness i think so yeah maybe, you, haven't
1: you had a problematic fave
0: uh, I'm trying to think. No, you're perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I read Penny Arcade back in the day. Sure. Which is like, ooh, if you look at it now. I think maybe that's just something that with, in a society that we're just bombarded
1: by all this information, we're like, oh, I need to justify why I was obsessed with this one thing when I was a child. Well, also like stuff like the Nostalgia Critic, it was a kind of underground phenomenon, mm-hmm. and but he
0: had a lot of views, but like millions the, but of views. But that's the thing.
1: I think there's a sense when people are read up on like what happened with him and everything. There's a sort of sense of almost community of like, okay, other people saw this too. Other yeah, people yeah, yeah. felt this. I'm not insane. I'm not. I'm yeah, not, other people felt betrayed by this guy. <laughs>
0: betrayed by. him listen he was not running a good company
1: (laughs) that's i don't think he was yeah
0: (laughs) okay so wait so the letter continues having almost checked off your entire back catalog of pod i've yet to hear two directorial names pop up I saw these names, and I went, I do not know these filmmakers. Okay. I do know their films, though, so when I looked it up. Okay, try me. Amir Rica. Okay, I know who he is. You do? So you know, like, Underground. He he did Black Cat, White White Cat, Cat, yeah. Yeah. And this guy's more uh, modern, Lucas Mudison. Yes, okay, I know of him, but I
1: haven't really. (laughs) Yeah. We're just revealing all my blind spots. Uh, I was uh, surprised. Lucas
0: Mudison just got a big Arrow box set. And it's, like, ten of his movies, like, in a clear, super fancy case. And I'm like, wow, does he have enough, like, fans to
1: justify that? But I guess, I mean, they're going for it. I mean, look, I'll just cut the letter writer off here. I have a lot of blind spots. (laughs) We must do. And those are two of them. Yes. But you know what? We're learning every week on this podcast. We're reaching the point, though,
0: where, like, we have so many episodes that people go, they must have talked about this.
1: Guess what? We didn't talk about Buster Keaton. <laughs> Never done an episode on it. I mean, him I know. Yeah, that's but right. but the thing about it, we haven't done Buster Keaton because there are there are a certain contingent of filmmakers who are like, oh well that's easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can keep that in our back pocket.
0: Like the day that like we, we they wheel me in and I have like no more motion in my body, I can talk Buster Keaton, I guess. <laughs> you know what I'd kind of like to do one of
1: these days is like redo the first ten episodes? Oh, that'd be a fun experiment. Wouldn't it be fun? Like like let's can you believe we we wasted such good John Woo and Michael Bay in the same episode. Ridiculous. I mean we should yeah, we should do an actual John Woo episode. We should do, or even some of those early ones. Like, can you believe we did like Orson Welles so early on?
0: Here's what we do. Once we hit 400, we do redux. And from 401 onward, we do like 10 episodes redoing ones. I would love to do that from the
1: from the first 30 or 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So uh, maybe we could take a vote. of uh, No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, I, I just want to do the <laughs> yeah, ones I want to do. Yeah, that's right. So he just asks, have you ever heard of him? He's a big fan of Black Cat, White Cat, et cetera, et cetera. It's one that he's seen endlessly since the age of eight. I hear Black Cat, White Cat. Has like a real cultural impact with certain people, and it's one that I only learned about reading through like a thousand and one movies. Uh, see before you die, and I've seen Underground. That oh, one wait a great. minute!
1: I have seen an Amir Costa Rica film. I saw Arizona Dream. Oh, you did there with you go. Uh, Johnny Depp and Jerry Lewis, <laughs> and I bet you know why I saw it. <laughs> yeah, you're a big Depp head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is, Is it Monday yet? Because <laughs> uh, Jerry was in it. And you know what? I thought it was a delightful film. I loved it. Never yeah. seen that one. Yeah.
0: So thank you very much for the letter. And it's always good to have reminders of filmmakers. We could add to the... Because I think like doing the guy who did Black Cat, White Cat, that'd be fun to do. Yeah. And it will give you a reason to watch Arizona Dreams again. Yeah. <laughs> Not that you need one. <laughs> so if you have any other questions or comments, you can send them to us at Podcast at com. This week on our Patreon. Sometimes episodes come to life by acts that we do day to day. Uh, things events that happen we go will we should do a patreon episode on this as we leave our seats at the cinema having experienced something that no one else has in that context.
1: Justin and I went to the Review Cinema in Toronto to watch the Bobcat Goldthwaite comedy, Hot to Trot, the definitive talking horse comedy. <laughs>
0: so, if you want to hear his riff about talking horses for like 10 minutes, okay. Will no, shows no, one then, of his
1: ignorances. And that's so 10 minutes, followed by many more minutes 15 of 15 minutes of Hot to Trot.
0: Yeah, Check it out, patreon.com slash the important cinema club. John Candy plays the talking horse. And
1: then, beyond that, years
0: and years and years of bonus content. Yeah. Check all of that out. Oh, and before I forget, I'm doing a new thing where every Monday I'm trying to screen movies on the Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash important cinema club that is related to the topic that we're about to do. Mm-hmm. So just check out Monday, eight PM EST. Uh, mega members of the Patreon page get to vote. There's like four choices every week and whatever wins gets to be shown on the Twitch channel and it's open to everybody. You don't have to be a patron to watch. Keep
1: an eye on the ICC Twitter page, mm-hmm. you know, for updates on that. It's uh, fun and you'll you'll meet friends and maybe even your future wife or husband.
0: <laughs> and that's the important cinema club
1: guarantee from Will Sloan. Well, Japan Month continues on the next episode with Hisayasu Sato. And this is a filmmaker. And I'll make sure I pronounce it right next time. <laughs> this is a filmmaker. Yeah, you'll find lots of videos saying his name. <laughs> uh yeah, this is a filmmaker who deals in the Pinku genre, the mm-hmm. Japanese softcore erotica, and uh quite violent as well. Some of his most famous stuff includes Splatter, Naked Blood, Muscle, and Celluloid Nightmares. Uh
0: Muscle is like a famous gay film, too. So
1: I'm looking forward to watching that one. And uh yeah, again, a filmmaker who I've wanted to explore for a long time.
0: Never seen one. One of his films nor
1: have i so let's get our hands dirty let's get in on this
0: <laughs> so until next week my name is the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening i would like to thank some of our new patrons who include seamus turner glennon evan ballard dalrymple Gallifond, fond l hollier samuel langstone julian frida granados and John Hayes. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing it without
1: you. Well, there's a hot new Bollywood blockbuster out now, and Justin and I both saw it on separate days.
0: Because it's just that big a hit.
1: I wanted to join Justin and Peter... on Saturday, but it was sold out. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I wish
0: we could have seen it at the Albion, but it's a Hindi film, and those tend to be, like, bigger, and they have a distribution network through the Cineplex system, which is unfortunate, because, I mean, we both saw it impact sold-out audiences at a cinema, which never happens, unless you're seeing a superhero film on the day it comes out.
1: Yeah, hugely popular, and this is a new vehicle for the king of Bollywood, Shah Rukh Khan. You
0: know that Shah Rukh Khan has played, like a mentally disabled man in multiple movies I know I I,
1: I do know that because I saw My Name is Khan that film
0: but you did not see his last film where it was a Forrest Gump remake I'm not even kidding even starts with the feather falling to the ground god that's something I feel like we need to watch yeah
1: we should watch that anyway This is a new, it's just a straight up, like... Well, who's Shah Rukh Khan? Like, what has he done? Why is he popular? Well, Shah Rukh Khan is uh, after Amitabh Bachchan. Yeah. You know, the heir to Amitabh Bachchan, basically, like, the biggest star in India. And if you want to know why he's a star, like, and you don't have the cultural
0: context, watch the interview he does with David Letterman on that, like, Netflix-produced show. This person needs... This guest needs no... Introduction. And, like, Shah Rukh Khan is so charming... In that interview, you're like, I get it. Like, he is so polished, and he feels
1: human, and you f- know that he's told these stories a thousand times before. Well, there was a particular blockbuster oh, yeah. that really elevated him in the 90s called, and I'm not going to get the title right, but Dulhania Le Ljayanga. We watched it, and I have no memory of it. I remember it. It helps to, you know, be Indian to to kind of really get it. But, like, that was a movie that was very much about, like, Uh, Well, again, modernization Mm -hmm. about old values in conflict with new values. And he played this like young boy and and there was a young girl and it was like, God, was he Westernized or was she Western? I don't remember. She was traditional. He was Westernized and he was pursuing her and like... That's what he kind of is. He's like, he's the Tom Cruise of Bollywood.
0: I mean, he yeah, he says he's in competition with Tom Cruise, which brings us to
1: Pathan. Well, so Pathan is a maximalist action movie. It's kind of like a Fast and Furious movie. Okay.
0: You, we want to say it's like a Fast and Furious movie. This film has escaped from like 2004 because like... For an hour, he's dressed like Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 2. He has the same hair. He has a leather jacket. He has the sunglasses. And it's I, wild. Yeah,
1: I love that because it's not dark at all. No, it's not
0: like, but there's also no kind of irony to any of the filmmaking totally.
1: or the action. I mean, I love, it's kind of like Die Another Day.
0: <laughs> exactly. But yeah. better. Pierce Brosnan, we love him in those movies, but he's all flab
1: dad bod. Okay, what is happening with Shah Rukh Khan's <laughs> I body? Mean,
0: definitely CGI guys are coming in doing a little work when he shows those abs. It
1: has to be because he's 57 and yeah. there's no, if there's you no look, way. If
0: you look at him in that David Letterman interview, he looks like a normal older man. Right. Like when he's doing the interview. Even his face in this movie is like all smooth and like triangular.
1: But you know, what fine i i I don't care i love movie magic (laughs) and this movie yeah he plays uh, i
0: mean he seduces or the romance it was a woman like
1: literally half his age (laughs) and she's gorgeous yeah she Um, is anyway uh this movie yeah two and a half hours of non-stop entertainment that's how i would describe it like so much so much entertainment and i never got tired of it i never got (laughs) bored i never got worn out it was just one incredible thing after another if
0: you're tired of like quips and kind of like wink wink None of that in Python. If you can see it now, like when this episode drops, go see it with an audience of people because like... The second he shows his face, the crowd's like, yeah! I yes. love it. <laughs> there were
1: cheers at my screening too, at the sight of him. And then, like the audience, we're all on the same page about what this movie is. Mm-hmm. It's a ridiculous action movie. It's a little bit campy. You know, it's anchored by the charisma of Shah Rukh Khan. Now, you may not know
0: about what happened at a certain part in the movie, but there is a cross-pollination of universes that happened. Right.
1: So there's another gigantic Indian star who shows up reprising a character, from a franchise.
0: Yeah, called Tiger, uh, played by Salman Khan. Now, I've never seen these movies because the Tiger films are supposedly, uh, when you get into these Hindi blockbuster uh, territory, you get into very noxious political stuff.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, I mean, this one, Pathan, I mean, it's certainly... It's
0: trying to be like, not all
1: Muslims are bad. Well, it's a patriotic movie. I mean, Shah Rukh Khan himself is Muslim. Mm, There you go. So, I mean, I'm sure he has a complicated relationship with this stuff.
0: If you want to look at the star of Tiger, Salman Khan, Wikipedia page, it is hairy. Like, your eyebrows will shoot up off of your head reading. Have you ever read into his... No, uh... I, I haven't. So he basically...
1: He committed manslaughter while drunk. Oh, I remember this. Yeah, he went to jail. Uh,
0: and the uh, person, the officer in charge of his case, was mysteriously murdered as
1: well. Oh, wow. Well, I'm going to separate the artist from the art, I think. <laughs> I mean, when
0: he shows up, my audience
1: went wild. They were like, oh,
0: yeah! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and did yeah. you stay until the end credits? I did. Because there's a great little bit at the end of them sitting there being like... Oh, we're getting too old for this shit. And then like, who's
1: going to replace us? What about
0: that guy? He's like, mm, no. And they don't say any name. They just say that guy. No, no, not that guy. And it ends with them going like, guess we got to still stay in this.
1: Yeah, love that. Okay. I mean, they do not incorporate that, you know, them being aging guys into the text of the film. <laughs> no. Otherwise. No, 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 no.
0: It ends with some musical number that plays over the credits where like the climax is him like ripping his shirt off to show like, like Indian stars at this point have like 10 pack abs. Oh. Like it looks, it, it looks kind of horrifying.
1: But yeah, I mean, there has been this, I mean, uh, uh, you know, living in the world, I just know that there's been this uh, far right Hindu nationalist shift going on in India that is increasingly reflected in the Indian blockbusters. Yeah, because we talked about it when we saw that propaganda movie. That Akshay Kumar film. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Which I found a very unpleasant experience. I didn't. I mean, this one...
0: Not really, other than, like, it's very patriotic, where the villain, and this made me laugh every time, is named Jim... (laughs) Yes. And they're constantly being like, no, Jim is going to get us.
1: No, it's Jim. <laughs> Played brilliantly by John Abraham, I thought.
0: And people love John Abraham too. Like they were like, yeah! When I, he came out I of thought, thought he
1: was hugely charismatic in this role.
0: I was dying of laughter. And there's a scene where like, Shah Rukh Khan is like following a woman and he goes to a pool and he looks over and uh, Jim <laughs> is just sitting there in the pool. <laughs> and he's like, just staring down. I laugh so hard. You have to see it in the movie, to, like get the context of where yeah, it comes if
1: from. If Pathan is playing near you, yeah
0: and it probably is if you live in a major city you're gonna have a good time see this movie one complaint not enough musical numbers I agree there was only one and one in the credits and Shah Rukh Khan barely did any dancing I understand he's 57 years old but uh, there's a one take action scene that it looks like he's doing most of it in the train where he's fighting love that kind of shit good movie